it's not that surprising, right? Like people that are in that are wildland firefighting, like they like to work hard, they're really passionate. And so they try to transform that passion into, into different things. And it's really amazing to see how people balance it during the season and then where they take those experiences afterwards and how they manifest, uh, you know, that on the line uh, experience, you know, where they cut their teeth and how they, they use that to, to leverage out from there. And so whether that be in something wildfire related or something completely different, it's always, it's amazing to see people's uh, you know, pathways after or during, you know, those operational experiences. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and we finally have a new episode for you. First of all, it's been like a month and a half, as per usual. I don't know why I think that I'm going to be able to keep up a consistent posting schedule during fire season, because it literally never happens, but here we are. We're doing it. So... Today's episode, we are talking to Harrison Rain. Harry and I actually worked on a crew together in Idaho back in 2017. And it's been great to stay in touch with Harry since our time on the crew together because he uh, ended up on a shot crew, but he also simultaneously got really involved in sort of the academic side of things in fire. He has traveled all over the world to study different fire organizations and how different countries uh, handle fire management. So he's traveled to and actually like fought fire in a couple of different countries, um, South Africa, Greece, Canada, Australia, the U.S., obviously. And I will link to some of his work in this episode's show notes. Um, He's done a lot of of cool stuff. And that was just for his undergrad. And now Harry is studying uh, at UC Berkeley. He's doing a lot of work in the wildland urban interface realm and really just doing a great job of combining his on-the-ground fire experience with more of this academic work, research, that kind of thing. So it's been really cool to keep up with what he's been up to. He is also a recent recipient of the American Wildfire Experience microgrant, where he'll be helping to document and facilitate a photo book of different wildland firefighters from across the world and just talking a little bit about their experiences and how firefighting might be different in these different countries, but also how it's fundamentally the same as uh, as the U.S. and kind of across the board what wildland firefighting means. Harry put it much more succinctly than I can, so this is a little blurb from his American Wildfire Experience uh, application. The project seeks to shed light on the differences that exist between wildland firefighters in different countries, but more importantly, the characteristics that are consistent across boundaries, the camaraderie, the rugged nature of the work, working for the land, and battling a changing climate. So we'll get into our conversation with Harry in just a minute here, but I do want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Mystery Ranch. Mystery Ranch is proud to be the first pack company to provide women's specific harnessing in their hotshot line. And in their hot speed pack, uh, which is their sort of engine and initial attack category. And Mystery Ranch is also excited to provide a line of packs for the international fire community that doesn't require or carry fire shelters. So the Shift SC and the Hotshot line are both being supplied in Australia and Canada because Mystery Ranch knows that the shifts aren't shorter and the load carriage needs don't change no matter where you're at or where you're lacing your boots up. And those folks in Canada and Australia are facing the same sort of extended and intense fire seasons that we are here in the States. So whether you're in Australia or you're in the States, 
whether you're putting good fire on the ground or suppressing wildfires, Mr. Ranch probably has a pack for you. And it's probably better than the pack that you currently have. Maybe I'm a little biased. I don't know. But I love Mystery Ranch gear, and I've spent a significant amount of time with a Mystery Ranch fire pack on my back. So do with that what you will. And in the meantime, you can check out Mystery Ranch at the link in our show notes. And if you are in a position to be purchasing packs for your crew and you have women on your crew, I would highly recommend that women's harnessing. I promise the ladies on your crew will appreciate it. And if you're not in fire or if you're not looking for fire packs, Mystery Ranch has a variety of other types of packs available. They've got backpacking packs, they've got ski packs, they've got hunting packs. Basically, if you got something that you need to carry, Mystery Ranch probably has a solution for you, and it's probably like the most comfortable backpack you'll ever put on. So go check them out. Their link is in the show notes. And thank you to Mystery Ranch for supporting the podcast and for encouraging me to get Harry on the show because we're going to talk about a really important topic, which is essentially how wildland firefighters can use that on-the-ground experience, those slides, as they say, to pursue careers, whether academically or creatively or in policy or whatever it is, but uh, pursuing those careers outside of the fire world that really are benefited by that on-the-ground fire experience. So if you've thought about trying to get out of fire to pursue something academically or pursue a career that is somewhat wildfire adjacent, uh, this is the episode for you. So let's get into it. Uh, Here is Harrison Rain for Life with Fire podcast. Uh, Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah. Hi, Amanda. Yeah, Great to see you. Uh, So we worked together in 2017. Uh, I worked again in 2018, and then in 2019, I received a fellowship to travel and study uh, wildfire management in a couple different countries. Uh, it was It's kind of that thing that everybody really wants, and I was somehow really fortunate and privileged to get the opportunity to uh, travel for a year and study something I was passionate about, and so that was uh, fire ecology, community design for, for wildfire resiliency, uh, and wildfire management. So I went to seven countries. Uh, I went to Canada, Spain, uh, Portugal, South Africa, Australia. I spent a little time in Greece as well. Uh, and now I, and then I went back to uh, to operations. I went to uh, a hotshot crew in Northern Utah. And then now I'm in uh, a landscape architecture and city planning program at UC Berkeley, uh, trying to work on uh, community uh, planning uh, for wildfire. So Sick. kind of a long winded answer there. No, you're crushing it. And you are like one of uh, a few people who I know who have worked as a hotshot and then found interest in graduate programs. Like um, somebody that I worked with on ZigZag is now working in um, in urban planning, land management for, uh, for resilience, I guess, for fire resilience, which I find fascinating. And he was like doing that work while he was on the shot crew. And I just witnessed firsthand like how much work that requires and how he was like literally on fire assignments, like in the buggy on the way to fire assignments, like finishing like graduate projects and like talking to his advisor. And uh, so I like, like have mad respect for people who are able to kind of be in both of those worlds at once. But I'm curious, like, what was your undergraduate studies or what were, what were you studying in undergrad? Uh, So in undergrad, I studied uh, biology uh, as well as ecology. Uh, And so I did, I did the fire, uh, fire seasons during the summers. And then I went back to school. I just want to mention though, like it's, it is surprising and it's cool to see people that 
that kind of step between both of those roles. But at the same time, it's like, it's not that surprising, right? Like people that are in that are wildland firefighting, like they like to work hard, they're really passionate. And so they try to transform that passion into, into different things. And it's really amazing to see how people balance it during the season and then where they take those experiences afterwards and how they manifest, uh, you know, that on the line uh, experience, you know, where they cut their teeth and how they, they use that to, to leverage out from there. And so whether that be in something wildfire related or something completely different, it's always, it's amazing to see people's, uh, you know, pathways after or during you know those operational experiences and you're a great example of that as well you know you're not in the academia but you're doing you're manifesting it in different forms totally i know i love to watch it i love that you know like a lot of the folks that i worked with in fire from 2016 to 2019 i like really appreciate seeing their pathways into um like even just like teaching wildfire classes or getting into land use planning or you know just like manifesting whatever, whatever skills that they have, like utilizing those skills in a way that is still really impactful and, um, you know, finding that passion via fire is, is just a really cool path. And that's kind of what I'm having you on to talk about. I'm curious, like if you found operational fire first, or if you had an interest in pursuing like ecology or fire ecology or the, the sort of graduate studies that you found yourself in, like what kind of came first in that process? You know, I don't know if I would have been able to stay in school if I hadn't done operations, uh, both because it really just gave me the lessons that I needed to stick with school, like the, um, the intangibles and also like the focus, um, but also the cash, right? Like to, to, to you know, keep going and, and do those things. Uh, so I, I went to school first, right? But then I started... Uh, firefighting when I was 19 and that totally like reset my clock for uh, staying in school and like refocusing on school. Um, and then, so I, and I think I, I used to think that school was like more of a summer vacation than uh, the fire season uh, just because I felt more like I, it was work and I was, I was, uh, I was focused and uh, that was, that was just where more of my energy was was being expended was was during the fire season as opposed to to school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At what point did you feel like that shift happening where you did want to pursue uh, fire as a graduate study as well? Um, so during that year when I was traveling, uh, it was really special because I was able to see like across different contexts where the gaps were kind of in our approach to uh, to wildfire management. And something that really stuck out to me was that it was really falling into three camps, right? There was academia, there was fire management, fire suppression, and then there was like land management. And those were like kind of the three pillars around this issue, but every, but there was so much, there's so many gaps in between those, those pillars. Uh, and, you know, nobody was really focusing on, uh, on people that much, right? Like we were doing vegetation management, but, but nobody was really trying to work within the communities, right? Fire managers were trying to do that, firefighters, but they didn't necessarily have all of the skills to do the, the communication or the, the policy. Uh, and so uh, during that time, I really started to notice the gaps. And so um, something that people talked about a lot was how we need to get land use planners uh, on board. And I was like, what is land use planning? Uh, and so after after that experience, I started looking into it more and I was realizing that it's kind of a policy thing. It's a planning thing. It's also a design thing, right? They all kind of 
or different disciplines that revolve around the arrangement of people and infrastructure. Uh, and so that's where I was like, okay, I can see that this is a problem when it comes to fire. So I'm going to go that direction. Mm-hmm. And you sensed those gaps in all the countries that you visited pretty much across the board. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild. Um, you know, Canada versus South Africa, right? There's a lot of differences there in terms of their, uh, and as well as Spain, right? In terms of their, um, their organization and their stability, but it seemed like the, the traditional pathways of academia, land management and fire suppression were really strong in all of them. But, and then there were like little inklings of other developments, right? Like Canada's Firewise or FireSmart, right? So they, they were pushing that, that uh, agenda, but there wasn't really, you know, uh, those types of programs in other lesser developed countries. So it, it was really clear that um, there was these consistent camps uh, across, across countries. Did you see anybody that was really nailing it compared to the US? Um, like anybody that seemed to be sort of a little bit ahead of the game? You know, there's, there's a lot of people that uh, are really good at, at, different, at different aspects. Uh, I think a lot of countries looked at the US as kind of the premier, you know, fire management country, right? In terms of our resources, in terms of our fire suppression, right? We by far have the biggest uh, wildland firefighting force and like some of the um, most profound ecology resources to understand um, different fire regimes. But I would say that there were other countries that were definitely uh, being more proactive uh, in in their approach. For example, uh, Catalonia and Spain, it's like the north uh, eastern portion it's like where Barcelona is they have their 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 own state and they have a they basically their system is integrated uh, fire service so it's the same structure and wildland is put together and uh, just the culture within the fire management organization uh, the fire is good mentality is is unanimous right and so uh, they don't re- like they're really trying to push uh, um, trying to push that uh, proactive fire on the landscape, manage wildfire, working with fire in different ways that we necessarily don't. And they also bridge that divide between structure and wildland in a way that we don't really, right? All of their structure firefighters go to a wildland firefighting um, kind of uh, orientation or camp. And then obviously they have like different specialties after that, but they all have that, that basic training um, and they have some great great leadership in terms of, of uh, proactive, um, not full suppression um, mm-hmm. mentalities that, that we sometimes have here, here in the States. Um, you know, Australia is another really interesting place. Um, I was there when the pandemic shut down, but they, they pushed the boundaries on basically um, a lot of different ways. And, obviously, and, and they're much more proactive when it comes to uh, indigenous support Mm -hmm. Uh, i would say they um they have they have a lot of complications in the same way we do Uh, and canada also is um there's some great leaders right you're talking with christensen they're really they're 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 pushing it in a way that um sometimes we we struggle with here in the states in terms of of recognition right they have the fire sticks alliance um and I'm, i'm not talking about within the indigenous communities i'm talking about the external 
a governmental approach. Right, right. Like getting the agencies to better incorporate ecological knowledge and just like giving the authority to tribes to do that work. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny to, or not funny, I think it's interesting to think about how culture, how fire culture might change when you have less suppression resources to work with, like how that necessitates a thought towards proactivity versus outright, like we have enough resources that we can suppress things when they happen. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, did you sense that in some of the some of the countries that you worked in? So in Europe, they have this term called the firefighting trap, which basically is this idea that um, that you, you're reinforcing this positive feedback when you con- continue to give uh, all of your resources to fire suppression, right? So the, the terms, the, the way they would talk about it is the politicians would ask the firefighters when there's a big fire, what do you need? And the firefighters would respond, we need more you know, equipment or resources and things like that. And so in order to finance those, uh, the political concerns, they would make those allocations and that doesn't necessarily get ahead of the feedback loop, as we know, right? It's not being proactive, it's just reactionary. And so I thought it was really interesting that they had, they had this term, firefighter trap, right? That was part of their narrative. And that was part of the narrative within the firefighting organizations themselves. So it was like this, this self-awareness that uh, was really different, right? It was like, uh, we, have to, we have to change our narratives, like move away from being a reactionary organization. Uh, so it was, it was a... It was a form of internal uh, awareness that uh, was, was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just, it feels like we're just too broad of an agency to be able to have those, those to be able to make those narratives more widespread. Like it just feels like, I just don't sense that that would be sustainable or that that would be possible in the United States right now, just given like how broad the agencies are and how many interests they have and how many different agencies we have working in this space and yeah, I don't know. Well, certainly certainly with the, the recent mandates that we've seen, you know, you know, as a result of the Calf Canyon, you know, the moratorium on prescribed burn and, and, uh, um, and the response that we had to the managed wildfire that was Tamarack last year, right? That's, that's almost a regression of yeah. getting, of, of, of solving. Um, this idea of proactive fire and you, and you see the feedback right between the academic world and the land management world right where people are kind of trying to push against uh against that regression but there's there's so much um political um involvement within our our, our land management process that uh, we don't we don't necessarily see um full suppression going anywhere right it's mm-hmm. seriously uh, can you tell me a bit more, bit more about your research and about the fellowship? Actually, like kind of what maybe some of the things that you found, some things that were surprising to you. Um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the what resulted, I guess, from the fellowship and from traveling. Yeah, um, I think so. I guess one of the first things that really happened chronologically uh, that that stood out to me was I worked with this group called the Mountain Legacy Project in Canada and basically they do uh, uh, repeat photography. So they go to all these sites that these early surveyors uh, went to and it's usually like a high mountain peak and they, they took these like 180 glass uh, glass plate photography photos. So it's just uh, these really beautiful black and white photos of the landscape 
uh, at the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the, the 19th century. And, and then basically what this organization does is they try to find those exact spots and they go back to them. And there's thousands of these spots. Um, and they, they retake the photo to try to analyze how the landscape has changed uh, under uh, regimes of, of, of our current land management paradigm. And you just see this like huge transformation of, um, of tree infill, right? So they, that's what their main thing is, is how fire suppression has altered the landscape. But they also look at things like, like roadways and mines, how those have led to erosion. Um, but the tree infill is, is really wild. So anybody that's trying to understand how our, uh, our landscapes have changed under full suppression, I would really encourage them to look at the Mountain Legacy Project because it's such an incredible resource. Um, and uh, it's, it's a product of that, the removal of, of indigenous land management and the transition to, um, to you know, Europe, European style land management. And we can really see how the fire risk has uh, compounded. So that was one of the, the first things that really stood out to me. I was like, I knew these things existed, but to really go to the sites and look out and see the landscapes, um, that, was, um, that was a pretty staggering realization. This is uh, what Paul Hesburgh calls the invasion of, of trees. It's, it's very much uh, true. Um, and then I guess from there, there, was, there were a multitude of, of, uh, of insights that came along with uh, talking to all of these, these experts and people that are just amazing and leaders in their field, whether that be uh, researchers or, or um, practitioners. Um, I guess the firefighting trap was another realization. Um, that I had. And then I think that uh, another one that really stood out to me is, is how much other countries look to the US to uh, derive their, their uh, fire management and land management practices. So um, like how people look up to, to uh, hotshot crews and, uh, and that type of, of our type of ICS system and how other countries are trying to model that that or model it or adapt it to their own uh, country, uh, country context. Uh, mm -hmm. That was something that really stuck out to me is we don't necessarily think of that in the US of our radiating impact in terms of land management, but uh, it absolutely does. So, you know, that signals to us, maybe if we push um, those proactive land management practices, prescribed burning, and we kind of go move more in that direction, it's possible that that could radiate out to, to other countries that would um, become more comfortable in that sense, right? So that was that was another kind of big standout um, realization. Um, and then also, like I talked about, another one was the gaps, right? All of these gaps, so uh, that exist within the professional world, right? Integrating fire management into other practices, um, and something that really uh, surprised me is is that so many people stay within their silos and they don't necessarily talk across uh, different. Uh, disciplines. So trying to get people, and this is something I tell uh, my coworkers, is like try to push out, right? Try to push out maybe necessarily if you don't want to be in operations all the time, push out, take those skills with you and that, that knowledge and try to integrate it into a different discipline so that we can kind of start to, to bridge across things a bit more. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a great, that's, that's a great uh, way to articulate something that I feel like I've sensed for a long time, but I'm curious, like, are there any organizations that are actually making those connections right now that you see that are like actually 
sort of working, making that, making that happen, connecting those pillars? So one organization that really stands out to me is the Pau Costa Foundation uh, in Spain. And so they're like a nonprofit and they integrate all of these different um, disciplines, right? They, they kind of try to act like a hub for, yes. uh, for all these different people. So they, they have kind of working groups for, um, for firefighters, mostly European firefighters, right? But they also integrate people like shepherds, pastoralists, and then you know, academics people that are just interested in, in, in getting involved with the issue, the public, um, community leaders, right? And they try to, they try to bring everybody together just as like a common, common platform uh, for engagement. And it's really hard. That's it's hard. Not, yeah, it's not an easy thing. <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure we necessarily uh, have an equivalent in the US. There's definitely a lot of organizations that, that try to do it, um, do it in their own ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that hub element is something I've been thinking about is like, how can we, yeah, how can we bring it all together and how can we work outside of, I feel like the Forest Service is really the hub right now. Like everybody is just kind of like tacking on to whatever they're doing and like trying their best to like inform policy or inform inform agencies to, to consider their needs and to consider, you know, their values, I guess. So just working outside of that and trying to create something a little like something external, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I see it a little bit with like what the WTREX is doing and Ember Alliance and the Nature Conservancy, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if any organizations are kind of working into that realm of trying to create that wildfire, like policy management operations hub, uh, and how we can get everybody on the same page there. But yeah, no, and those are, those are all great organizations. I agree. And they're all kind of working, uh, they're, they're, they're crossing those boundaries, but um, I'd say that the distinction is that the Palo Costa Foundation is like, it just operates as a, a linkage, right? It's just a body of, of knowledge um, mm-hmm. that people can, can ask. And they, they basically just manage projects, right? So people can consult them and then they'll, they're, and they'll kind of offer expertise. Whereas these other organizations, are, they're actually doing things on the land, but that they're so busy, uh, maybe, working on their own specific projects that they're not operating as like a consulting or like a broader body, right? To, to interact yeah. with all these different projects. Cool. I can't wait to look into that um, because for a while, I didn't know that there was maybe an analog for this or that there was like somebody that was kind of doing this in a, in a way that, you know, we could potentially replicate in some sort of, in some means, but cool. Well, I'm curious to know, like, how has your research and that fellowship especially kind of like informed or influenced your work as a hotshot? Is there any like connection there for you in terms of like what you're seeing on the ground and things that are like maybe firing in your mind while you're on the ground as a hotshot and how that's maybe informing your research? Like, has it changed maybe the way that you look at hotshotting or has it changed the way that you look at how fires burn? I mean, I learned a lot about, about fire behavior during that time. Uh, they're, they're definitely pretty distinct, uh, right? I, I try not to cross pollinate. <laughs> yeah. I, they, they felt like definitely pretty distinct chapters. I'd say my research now has the most in common with, with hot shotting. Um, but it definitely supports other, other, uh, ventures, right? So like my research now, I basically tried to, uh, 
do wildfire analysis and modeling and GIS for uh, trying to identify and categorize risk. So trying to determine where are the, the biggest threats uh, and where vegetation management is most, most necessary. And so I think maybe one area that hot has really helped me is like trying to understand the intersections of fuel and topography. Uh, so, you know, it's so funny when you, when, when you do operations, you just like, you stop looking at the forest as a forest and you just start looking at it as like fuel or risk, right? Yeah. Same thing within the, the wildland urban interface. It's just, you just start to realize where are the structures that are not defendable? Where are they defendable? Why? And so, um, and you start to look at the topography differently. So basically I look at kind of spatial patterns and vegetation patterns, right? And so right now I specifically focus on canyons. So structures that are built along the rims of those canyons or within those canyons, how much fuel are on the slopes that lead up to those structures, how much fuel is within the canyon next to those structures. Uh, and so there's, and I'm working with some other folks on this project and it's always funny because they have to do a lot of reading to try to understand how fire and topography are influenced or how fuel, different types of fuel influence fire. And for, for those that have done operations, it's just intuitive, right? You, you've seen it, you, you understand it a bit more. So um, now it's just a matter of trying to identify it and communicate it in a way where it's like not, you know, relying on someone being intuitive. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, it kind of brings me to maybe a hard question for you, but I'm curious maybe if you have any advice for folks who are working in operations and have that sort of inkling to potentially take that knowledge and that um, acquired experience to graduate studies or even to just, you know, something beyond the operations world, uh, making those connections. Do you have any maybe advice or suggestions or experiences that you'd want to share in that realm? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's hard right now, right? Everybody is, you know, there's all this motion with grassroots and, uh, you know, the infrastructure bill that's changing kind of the attractiveness of staying in operations, but a lot of people, right, they realize that maybe uh, there's limitations to those opportunities and processes slow, so they're they're looking uh, they're looking to the outside. Um, and I would definitely say I always try to encourage uh, people to to really consider how this their experience on the line can uh, support them further out because it really can. There's a really big need in a lot of states, a lot of communities to try to. Uh, understand this problem and to mitigate um, the potential uh, worst case scenario. So um, for anybody that's really considering it, I would encourage them to lean into, uh, lean into what they've experienced, right? And what they're interested in and try to find a route that combines both, most, both, sorry, both of them. Because people are interested, people wanna know, right? I mean, we all know that as firefighters that people are interested in our experiences. And that's very much true um, in an academic sense or a research sense, those those lessons that you um, that you've experienced, your slides, they can definitely guide you um, and allow you to to move faster when it comes to wildfire topics. And there's so many people that are trying to understand the wildfire problem right now. Like it's just like everybody's pouring into it. Um, and so for somebody to come in and be like, I've I've seen this a bit more. I have a bit more of an intuitive or observational sense. Um, that's a huge benefit. So I would encourage people to, to lean into those experiences, to talk about them, 
uh, and also uh, try to combine them with some some other passion that they might have and go go with that. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Um, totally. I feel like we all have we all have these strengths that we can kind of explore and expand on. And it's really fun to find those strengths and kind of and really lean into them and commit to it and figure out how you can braid that love of fire, that operational experience with um, with something that can feel impactful in a different way, I guess. I'd love to hear more about your research and kind of where you intend to go as a career or if you intend to sort of stay in academia and continue doing research or if you have anything uh, kind of in mind for the future. Yeah, so I, I fall into this like kind of large, broad, nondescript term of planner, planning. That's that's where I'm at right now. I'd really like to be, uh, you, you spoke with, you know, Molly Mallory and Molly McCabe. Uh, and, and those are two people that I really look up to in terms of, of their work, right? They're working with communities to try to understand this problem and just design and plan themselves in a way that's going to support themselves in the event of an extreme wildfire, but also support um, potentially putting more fire on the landscape around the communities. So th that's kind of the direction that I would like to go is like working with communities and specifically within uh, a community structure. So a municipal government or a state government uh, to try to uh, to plan um, to plan for wildfire and integrate wildfire into traditional topics, like traditional topics like um, you know infrastructure planning or energy or water systems, right? And and just add a different uh, lens to all of those other types of of community planning or, uh, or land use planning. Uh, another option that I would be really interested in is working at a higher level like maybe the state level or the federal level to try to help other planners cultivate those lenses, right? So try to, I try to be more in a, a teaching role that would be um, a form of assistance to try to develop people's wildfire lenses. How do planners across, you know, Western states start to plan for this issue, right? There's, there's literature out there and there's workshops and things, but maybe, maybe we just need uh, a few more people that are providing that assistance. Yeah, man, that it just like, it's so exciting listening to you talk about this, just having like not really chatted with you too much since we were on a fire crew together and seeing how you're really like reflecting those experiences into your graduate work and, you know, finding that, finding that path that braids everything together. But yeah, so it's, it's cool to hear the work that you're doing in that realm. I like, I'm always so appreciative of hearing how everybody's taking this issue on in their own individual ways. And, uh, and it's just, it's constantly exciting to see all the research that's happening. And I don't know, I mean, I need to pick your brain about grad school at some point, cause it's really intimidating to be looking at grad schools and be like, okay, do I have like the robust experience that I need to get into like UC Santa Barbara, like their environmental. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like looking at all these bios for these people that are in these programs. And I'm like, I am not necessarily qualified for this. Or like, I am not involved oh. in policy enough for this, or I'm not involved in like, I haven't interned for like any number of these environmental agencies enough or whatever it is. And uh, maybe what could, what would you say to that in terms of people coming from operations and finding a way to bridge that gap into grad school and not feeling like a total imposter. <laughs> yeah, the imposter syndrome is rampant for everybody <laughs> in grad school, I'd say. Um, but there's, I would say there's two, in my eyes, there's two reasons for someone to pursue grad school. And that would be 
either an interest in doing research or an interest in a professional pivot, right? Like you're transitioning into a different um, career path and you need, you want to cultivate some skills. Other than that, uh, or, or the research side, right? Like you're, you're interested in asking questions and, and, and cultivating your own pathway to, to answering those questions. Um, I, I'd say other than those two kind of main uh, motivations, I would say that you can, you can cultivate the pathway you want by doing right mm -hmm. like i think you could you could serve in those as an assistance to those those nonprofits that you were mentioning i, I grad school would help cultivate more skills and uh, give more um, uh, understanding but in a lot of ways you can learn by doing um, it's a lot of work um, often it's very expensive right and so it, it is a trade-off and i i wouldn't say that um, it's something that should just be taken on um, because you feel like you need to take a step somewhere. I think that a lot of times that uh, you can take those steps without doing that process. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's different for everybody. I would say that for people coming out of operations that wanted to make a career shift, that there is definitely support that it gives. It gives you kind of more, more tools, right? Like I finished my undergrad and I didn't really have a whole lot of like technical skills. So that's something that I've been really learning is like, um, you know, different forms of programs or um, like how to, how to make maps, um, how, to, how to use like different fire modeling software. So simple things that I feel have really helped me kind of like understand um, how I can get to where I want to go. Um, but I, I think that for a lot of people, right, it can, it can help you with writing, but I don't think you need that. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you can just kind of learn by doing. And so yeah. uh, con considering grad school, it's, it's different for everybody, but it, those yeah. two motivations. Yeah. That's actually, that's very clarifying. I feel like a little part of my, I have like two parts of my brain that are kind of constantly battling kind of in that realm of, of thinking that I do need a grad, a grad graduate degree in order to like be taken seriously, but also knowing that there's a lot of work I can do in my community and with what I'm already doing to get the same skills effectively without necessarily having like UC Santa Barbara on my resume. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm kind of in the process of working through that right now and how that, how that looks. And I've found a few environmental consulting firms in Bellingham actually where I live uh, that I might reach out to and try to connect with and see if there's anything I can do with them. Like even like intern, like I don't even, I'm like, I'll, I'll work part-time for you. I'll intern, whatever. I just want to get some of that experience and what this actually looks like in practice. I, you mentioned earlier that you feel like those slides that you get as a hotshot or as a as somebody in operations can translate well into other, you know, other elements of the fire world. And I'm curious, kind of like what slides that you think about. What are what are some of the slides that you think about when you uh, mention things like that? Um, I think I think especially the big ones for me because I'm working. Uh, kind of on the wildland urban interface, you know, I'm kind of working on the immediate spaces around structures, because uh, I that's landscape architecture, as well as like the, the immediate space around communities. I think about the different slides that I've had where fire is coming into a community and like the defensible versus non-defensible decisions that were made, why they were made, um, what did we do to try to protect those structures, um, and what are kind of the 
right? Whether that's firing operations or uh, pump operations or like the different type of resources that you had and where they could and where they couldn't go uh, around a community. Uh, those are the slides that really stand out to me. Um, what what makes um, you know what makes a community defendable? And then also kind of like when I think about prescribed fire, what are the things around communities that make them more uh, or yeah like more prone to to uh, have prescribed fire be suitable in those spaces? Um, I think also uh, I have slides from. My sister works as a shepherd, uh, so she she does field mitigation with uh, goats and sheep. And so I think about uh, those types of of um, strategies, right? Where where do they work? Where don't they work? Uh, how close can they um, be to different communities? How do people respond to having those animals grazing uh, around their communities or their properties? Uh, so those are the, those are the things that I try to bring into to my research. Um, but there's like so many other slides, right? Like how fire works uh, in different types of topography, the different types of operations that we do in different environments. What is a big box, right? What makes a big box, uh, right? Those, those natural and man-made barriers that we try to link together uh, and how can, can, how can those be arranged kind of on the landscape? So those are, those are the type of things that I bring into to my research. Um, yeah, that's great. You grew up in, did you grow up in Colorado? No, I'm from Southern California. Oh, okay. So you grew up like with the sort of distinct and probably like consistent presence of fire in your life. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, did that sort of frame any of the decision-making you had going into like your undergraduate studies or? I remember a lot of evacuations. Um, and I think that it's, that kind of led to my interest, my first year of college, I was like, ah, college isn't that fun. I was, I was like, I gotta go do something else. Uh, so then I thought about uh, wildfires and wildland firefighting. So in some ways where I grew up definitely inspired um, that transition. Um, and then from there, it's just kind of been from one wildfire topic to another. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by how much you think about wildfire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely a specialist. Definitely specialized way quickly and <laughs> very in depth. Um, Molly, I spoke with Molly Mowry once and she, I was, I was actually kind of expressing that. I was like, are we, am I too focused? Like, is it, she was basically like, there's enough within this realm to focus on. There's so much going on. And it's true, the, the wildfire problem is evolving so rapidly. Um, and the need for solutions is so great that it is possible to. To, to specialize, you should probably spe specialize in something else, um, whether that be writing or, um, you know, ecology or planning or uh, silviculture, right? There's all these different ways to, to specialize with, with, the, with fire as the focus within a, another discipline. But um, definitely, maybe sometimes uh, it's a little, you know, tunnel vision on, on just fire, but. Yeah. I, I just feel like I commit 75% uh, of my brain power to thinking about wildfires and it gets, uh, it's get, it gets burnouty really quick. <laughs> and yeah, I'm trying to figure out. Depressing <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, like sort of skirting that depression and that like sort of despair at like, you know, these big, these big polish, these policies, the Tamarack fire, like kind of how all this public 
uh, how the public perception is changing because of these policies and actively trying to fight that and seeing a lot of people doing really good work and then seeing a lot of that work kind of being undermined by these widespread, uh, th these policies and these politicians that talk about fire in a really sort of non-educated way. Yeah, well, it comes down to, to the folks that have seen it to, to talk about it, to talk about it to everybody else that's um, cultivating an interest in it. Um, so to talk about it and to educate, um, because I think people will really listen. And you know, we we saw with with grassroots how much support they received so quickly, both within the community and from outside. But people people care about uh, care about this workforce, and they will listen uh, to this workforce. Um, hopefully, the institutions that uh, employ the workforce will also start to. Uh, follow suit, but uh, the general public certainly does. So, uh, trying trying to use that trust uh, and and encourage other folks to to get behind uh, kind of more proactive solutions is is kind of where I I place my my hope because I have a lot of trust in, in the workforce. I would say that nobody, I mean, like certainly a lot of people are, but but not in the sense that that wildland firefighters are in the on the front lines of of climate change in a lot of ways, right? We can see this change happening from year to year. Uh, the tiny little variables that start to, to change, right? Like the RHs don't uh, get as high at night, right? The fire keeps burning through areas that we thought would have served as a, a, a natural fire break before, right? We start to see these like these changes in fire behavior that just make things so much more difficult. And then those radiate out into you know more loss, more catastrophic impacts. Uh, and wildland firefighters are there, they see it constantly, right? They're day to day for you know, six to seven months. So nobody's experiencing it to the magnitude uh, that this workforce is. And so I think that this workforce can really channel what they're seeing into, um, uh, into greater action. All right, that is what we've got for you today. So thank you to Harry for coming on the show. If you guys enjoyed this or if you think of anybody who might enjoy learning about all the things that Harry spoke about, about maybe transitioning out of fire and into a more fire adjacent career, um, please pass this episode along to them. Otherwise, would love it if you guys could support the Patreon if you're interested in supporting Life with Fire financially or otherwise leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, tons of ways that you can support us and those are just a few. But we've been really feeling the love lately, so we do appreciate all the support, whether that is uh, sharing our stuff or talking about the podcast or leaving us reviews or any of those things. All awesome. All appreciated. And I don't know. Do people even listen to this part of the podcast? Send us a DM if you are listening to this part of the podcast, because I'm pretty sure that nobody actually cares about this part. Okay. Anyways, thank you for listening, and we will catch you on the next one.